one interesting statistic as you think about battery metals and EV targets, where we want to go as a global population. This is how short we are just on current pace of adoption of EVs in the world between now and 2030. And so from a copper perspective, you're basically going to be a million tons per annum short of that. And so what does that kind of imply is, and this is a good analogy for the oil and gas guys, but Escondida is the largest copper mine in the world. You're in essence going to be short, the largest mine globally. You need to find one of those every 24 months between now and 2030 to suffice current EV targets. And so, you know, the biggest copper mines in the world aren't falling off trees like every, <laughs> that was discovered in the 60s, I think it was. And so that's just not something that comes along often. And then to put it into an oil and gas perspective, it would be the equivalent of me telling you like, great, I need you to go start a Pioneer Natural Resources and build it in the next 24 months and then do that every 24 months between now and 2030. You're like, dude, I can't do that. Like, it's just <laughs> not, not realistic. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Rhett Bennett with me today, who is the founder and CEO of Black Mountain. Black Mountain is a private natural resources operating company based here in Fort Worth that has businesses in upstream oil and gas all the way to nickel mining in a basin in Western Australia. We have a really great deep dive today on the state of the nickel industry and what's going on and the rising demand. We talk about what's going on in oil and gas and why the lack of investment into oil and gas might create some uh, interesting opportunities going forward. And really just a great deep dive in how the commodities world is going to shape out over the next 10 years and what are the strengths and challenges. But to have a cool conversation about oil and gas and nickel, which a lot of the world might think of as competing forces, it was just really interesting to see how Rhett is playing out both strategies and how he's thinking about each. And um, I know I certainly learned a lot from today, and I hope you do too. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey and enjoy the episode. Rhett, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's just start off a little bit about your background, kind of starting Black Mountain and kind of all that you're doing right now. Sure. I'll uh, I'll kind of take it from the top and give you a bit of my personal bio and then some of the corporate history and then some of the, some of the stuff we're into today. Originally from Kentucky, uh, grew up in coal country, so different part of kind of fossil fuels, but my family had had continuous coal mining operations uh, since 1912. So all my aunts and uncles, my dad, his dad, his dad, et cetera, all, all did coal mining in Eastern Kentucky. So that's what I grew up around. And then I went to University of Georgia, similar to everybody in life. You kind of are graduating college and it's like, well, now what? And yeah. you know, what are, what are we going to do to make a dollar? So always liked the coal industry, but conflicting with that, I was 21 single. And so you're like, gosh, my town at 2000 people, is that really where, where you want to go spend your, your young twenties? So had a buddy going to SMU. I thought, well, maybe I'll like oil and gas if I like coal mining, which I did. So I came out, 
loaded up my truck, came out and stayed with my friend and just started job hunting to find my way into the industry, which after a couple of weeks, um, you really kind of hit an inflection point where you, you have to get off the couch because <laughs> the guy's tired of you. It doesn't matter if you grew up together or not. And two, like you got to start making some money. So, you, so you're very much on the clock when you, when you start, start down that path. So started networking, uh, meeting guys in the industry and met what would become my future boss and Doug Brown, a geologist in Dallas, uh, had his own small independent shop. I'd approached him through mutual connections, chatted, hit it off. And yeah, when we were kind of meeting, I could tell he kind of needed somebody, but you know, it's just, you know, you're assuming another burden kind of when somebody comes on board. So in the meeting, I was like, well, man, I'll work for $10 an hour if you just kind of teach me the business. And that was, that was enough to get in. So $10 an hour later and lots of petroleum engineering or principles, geology, all kinds of books at night. We, I'd come in and pick his brain. And, but that's how I learned the subsurface aspect of the business because at Georgia, I was business undergrad. So nothing oil and gas related educationally. So great learning experience. Uh, did that for a couple of years and around 07 started Black Mountain. And what I'd been doing for Doug was PDP, decline curve analysis, buying cash flows, something I was very comfortable doing, analyzing kind of uh, mineral royalty acquisitions. So initially started Black Mountain uh, with that business model. And then over the years, we've really just grown um, our business units and kind of our capabilities. Um, and one thing always kind of leads to the next. And so mineral royalties turned into land and leasing which also kind of gave way to getting into saltwater disposal wells, uh, disposal facilities, water midstream. Uh, eventually, that took us down the path of building frac sand mines, doing upstream EMP operations, and ultimately nickel, which I, I know kind of you want to chat about some more on the call. But so I like to kind of think we're just really entrepreneurial, very opportunistic, quite intrepid. Like, we'll, we'll just go try something without, you know, necessarily being afraid of failure, everything we do is kind of in and around natural resources. So maybe that's kind of the one kind of center of gravity. But besides that, yeah, I'm sure in a year or two, we'll be, we'll be in something that we're not in today. So. Well, I have like three questions around there. The first is when did you move from like friends and family money to kind of private equity institutional money? So that would have been right around 2015 or 2016 with NGP uh, natural gas partners out of Dallas. Uh, prior to that was relationship money guys I've made money for in the past oil and gas industry. Prior to that, the first, I guess, eight years of my career was all either my capital bank debt or close friends, family. I know worth guys I'd yeah. done deals with in the past. You said, uh, you're not fearful and you know, we just met, but if, if I've, you know, we're in the same town, we, we know some of the same people. If I were to describe you without actually knowing you, I would say one of the least fearful people ever. Is that like genetic? Is, is your family that way? How do you like go into everything with Wait. relatively little fear? <laughs> You're saying that's what people say about me? <laughs> no, I'm saying, uh, <laughs> well, I'm just saying you have all these companies. Yeah. It, it takes like an entrepreneur, but it also takes somebody that's willing to take risk. Sure, and sure. you look, uh, you strike me as somebody willing to take risk. Do you yeah. look at it as risk? Not necessarily. I mean, I think, I just think we've got really good risk tolerance. So, yeah. you know, we'll never blindly just jump in and do something that that's kind of what the herd's doing. And that's what everybody says they want to do. You know, it's much more, you know, if we can break it down and, you know, certainly, 
I'm probably one of the least educated people at Black Mountain now, but like at a certain point, if you can just break it down to basics, like, all right, it makes sense to me. Like, yeah. uh, and I think we just reached that point faster than some other institutions that might be a bit more bureaucratic, et cetera. And so that nimbleness has just really served us well, where, you know, if we identify a battery metals opportunity or a hydrogen opportunity, like it resonates, makes sense. Like, then we go and do it. Like, there's not a lot of committees or debates or allocations. It's just, you know, trying to chase the opportunity. So that's what takes us, you know, from this industry to that industry to, no oh man, now you're, you know, three steps over here. Yeah. Um, just chasing kind of the intuition of, of what can be money-making or successful. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's really cool to watch from the sidelines. Is there a process that you go through like if we just we can kind of start leading into the nickel, but or you've you have sand, you have saltwater disposal. Is there like an education that you put yourself through, or things that you go through that you get to a point where you're like, all right, we're going. Yeah, and I think it definitely all starts with like a lot of, I don't know the proper way to characterize it, but like in, industry reading and just staying really knowledgeable and current. I think that's the genesis of a lot of our ideas. Is you know just understanding kind of what's occurring in the world and then kind of thinking back and I'll, the practice going to be a great example here in a minute, but understanding like a broader kind of thematic shift, but then just being able to exploit it before lots of other people do. And so for Fraxan, that was really kind of watching who I think are the thought leaders in the space, like the EOG resources of the world where they were really starting to make a shift on the types of sand that they were pumping down completion jobs, moving much more to would be characterized as like regional sand or what would ultimately become uh, in-basin sand. Whereas, you know, the progression started with ceramics and really expensive kind of propent, artificial propent to really high quality northern white sand, which no question, some of the best sand in North America, if not the world, what we get out of northern white. But because there's a cost that comes with that. And at some point, EOG started to just figure out, like, we just need good enough. Like, it doesn't have to be the Cadillac going down hole. Like, if it's Ford and we get comparable results, like, we're, we're buying the Ford. And so at a certain point, you just see that uh, occurring with the operators, who's ultimately the customer base. Um, and so we got super interested on that and wanted to learn more, understand the frac sand space, the players within it, went down to a sand conference in San Antonio, gosh, four or five years ago at this point, went out to dinner with a couple guys, one of them, a Halliburton guy, which ended up kind of being the first guy uh, to come on board and, and really kick it off with me, but went down to just kind of start to pull at the string and understand the business, which was funny. And ultimately, Hank Gillespie was the the guy that was kind of employee number one that, that really helped me grow the business. But after dinner and you know chatting around hayden's like what's what's the emp guys doing at a sand conference like what are y'all up to um and kind of explained you know just my outside in kind of uh, analysis and he's like absolutely love to come start something and like this is this is where the market's going yeah um and sure enough it went from hayden employee number one to 550 employees within two years, six frac sand mines, deployed 800 million in uh, capital, just building the largest in-basin frac sand mining company in the U.S. But that was all all really kind of acknowledging like some trends and some shifts and then just going and doing it before 
other people did, which ultimately they did. And, and now, gosh, I bet 95% of all sand pumped is, is sourced in basin, regardless of basin. So, you know, that's, that's that window that you try and capture as an entrepreneur uh, between when the shift's occurring and, you know, when ultimately everybody acknowledges it and does it. And you got to find that window there to try and exploit it. So, like, let's just talk about that window. So you go to that conference, you meet Hayden, like y'all hit it off how quickly until you hire him and how quickly until you have money raised from like literally the time you left that conference? Oh, I think we'd, we'd probably hired him within a week. <laughs> I mean, it was like, <laughs> let's get that. Let's go. It's time to, time to rock and roll. And then we were just about, I think at that point in time, we were about to sell our oil and gas one company, which was NGP backed as well. Um, so that really kind of gave us a lot of dry powder, a lot of kind of credibility as moneymakers. And so NGP is really supportive um, and credit to those guys on kind of embracing the the entrepreneurial kind of twinkle in the eye and like getting it at a high level and kind of letting us go, go kind of pursue it. So, so we did and, and ultimately, you know, built a really, really big company out of it. Yeah. So, so it was a neat story. Super cool. And now you are the interesting thing I really want to hit on is what you're doing in nickel. Again, you're you're kind of ahead of your time here. I've done some research. I think it started at a conference again, like you heard some idea. Indeed. So like, let's just go through the story sure. of how it happened. Yeah, <laughs> not a lot of secret <laughs> sauce to it. But I, uh, and this one was totally by by accident. But I, I went up to an energy leaders forum in New York City. New York Stock Exchange was hosting a, a kind of get together deal. And which was great, really neat experience. Walk around the floor, the floor here, how you know the largest capital markets in the world work, all that stuff is a you know, businessman's super fascinating. But the real moral of the story is they had a round table that an IHS economist hosted for us that was called entitled The Coming EV Revolution and Implications for Oil and Gas. And I would totally admit up till that point in time, I'd always assumed, sure, fine, once they aren't a novelty and they do get adoption, life's going to go on because EVs have to get their electricity from somewhere. So we're just drilling more natural gas wells instead of oil wells. And life goes on kind of in the oil patch. But the IHS guy said something really profound that just stuck with me and, you know, kind of started the seed of of what we did in the metals uh, arena, which was... You know, he answered, he's like, well, yes and no. The no is going to be, it's not going to be apples to apples and that EVs are 80% more efficient than internal combustion engines due to heat loss. And man, he had me in that moment. I was like, gosh, that's a big number, 80% more efficient. And then my next thought is like, look, over the course of human history's efficiencies, when, if that number is even remotely close to being right, which I assume it is because he's an economist, like <laughs> this is coming. Yeah. And this was three years ago. Well, before people were like really banging the drum on EVs and I can recall like telling people I'm super intrigued on it. Um, like, what are you, what are you doing with that? And, then, but that, that's really where it all started. So really just kind of digesting that. And then of course your next entrepreneurial thought is how can I make money off that? And so came back, I had a really sharp lady working for me, uh, Ashley Zumwalt. She had finished Harvard business school. She was an engineer by trade, really brought her on and trying to figure out like, what where we're going to kind of put her and utilize she had a great skill set so i kind of came back and i i threw it to her and put it on her desk like i'm i'm fascinated with this space like i think there's something to it go investigate and figure out if we were to be in the battery metal space which battery metal would it be and where would we go to play it 
And I really kind of like to go back to like a horse racing analogy when I when I talk about that because we're woefully underqualified to like pick the next group at MIT or Stanford guys. Like who's coming up with the next great battery technology? Very venture venture-esque capital, just not not our strength or skill set. And to me, that felt like just going to the track and trying to pick a pony, like, good luck, man. Like, I, I don't know how that's going to end <laughs> for you. But what really resonated with me is like, okay, well, all these competing technologies are all using various proportions of the same metals off the periodic table. Like, what are the intrinsic values of those and, you know, pros and cons of each? Um, so to me, kind of, breaking down to basics again it was like all right let's let's just go be the feed in the barn stick to like natural resources what we know that'll be in high demand and whether you know it's horse a with the nmc 622 battery or 811 like doesn't matter to us like it's using a bunch of nickel so be it so that's how we at a high level started it was like let's understand the natural resources aspect and then ashley credit to her toured the world went to canada Morocco, Namibia, South Africa, Australia, just all the all the places that you would start to investigate from a battery metals perspective jurisdictionally. And after a couple months, she came back. She said, I think class one nickel sulfides are the play. They have the best fundamentals upcoming. And Western Australia is where you'd go to play it. And totally credit to her. It all really kind of worked out that way. Nickel has definitely got excellent trend lines when it comes to battery metal. And to back up, when you're kind of thinking about a battery and like what nickel does nickel's like your energy density so it's in all our iphones any of your evs like when you want to store kind of electrical power nickel's got great inherent properties okay and so for cars to go farther phones last longer the general trend was putting more and more nickel into the batteries um so that was kind of one of the high level trends that, that we wanted to focus on and so with that, similarly, we just started kind of broadening our network, uh, reaching out, having conversations. Um, at one point, Ashley was in New York at a dinner with some Apollo guys. They knew a guy named Mick McMullen really well that had been quite successful selling a couple businesses. At this point, sold two businesses for more than one for two billion, one for four and a half. So super successful guy. Ashley hit it off with him and she was telling me about him. Uh, and he lived in Turks and Caicos. I was like, all right, I gotta go see this guy. And so I went down, met with Mick and he's been fantastic. So he's our senior advisor, but been excellent at bouncing ideas off of keeping us away from tripwires, et cetera. So. And why did you meet with him? Cause he was in the nickel space already. He was described to us as like a tier one class a like mining guy like really knows his stuff got it um and i was like all right i've i've got the vision i think i know where we want to go and what particular battery metals we want exposure to but you know we need to we need to round out have some gray hair experience eyes look at a couple of these deals with us before we you know kind of misfire so and mick has been phenomenal on that and so he was an australian native and really kind of when you think about the globe and i i could give you tons of opinions about where we go kind of from a, a economy perspective on the ev revolution but the us is just not blessed with an abundance of battery metals yeah. um there's lithium in nevada copper in arizona but broadly speaking you know we're not endowed with like the world's greatest battery metal reserves that would be australia and so when you start to look around the world and what's the Saudi Arabia of oil to battery metals? Like it's Australia. Um, and so that was another, we got that question a lot, like why Australia? And 
kind of back. I forget the bank robber that was like, why do you rob banks? I stored the money's at. <laughs> so it's, it's very much that. I mean, they just, they're blessed with an incredible natural resource endowment, everything from oil, natural gas to uh, battery metals, especially battery metals. And so we set up an office in Perth, hired a whole team and acquired a nickel mine down there, Land Frankie, bought 20% of a public company down there. And so it's been super fascinating to watch. Something during the pandemic just kind of tripped. And I've got, again, plenty of opinions on like global warming and the relative effects of uh, increasing carbon concentration there. But at some point, it just quit getting debated as much. And it's just like, EVs are here, the world's changing, what's your carbon footprint? Like all of a sudden that felt very much like a different conversation, more of kind of just that's the way the world is now and less of a debate. And so all of a sudden it just really accelerated and to the point where coming out of the pandemic, you've got literally every car manufacturer in the world talking about how many models of EVs they've got coming out and, oh, we're going to be 100% EV by 2025 or 2030. So, yeah, it really kind of went zero to 100. And, you know, I think we would be definitely be kidding ourselves we're like oh this is exactly how fast it's going to happen etc um certainly thought the electrification of the world was like a coming kind of theme but man it is it's really turned quickly here in the last like 12 months yeah uh, it's been interesting to watch what do you think about global warming so loaded question no i mean i think i think there's merits to both sides uh and not splitting the baby with that but i would say it's a bit presumptuous of us to say that you know everything's anthropogenic and we're causing all this global warming like if you go back and and yes the starting with the basis of higher concentrations of co2 in the air lead to higher temperatures like very good correlation like i agree with you not going to dispute that but what i think it's lost on people is like we the world's millions of years old and when you look at like a particular 500 year window, et cetera. Like it's not representative of the entire history of earth. And yeah. you can look back at periods of time where CO2 concentrations were like 30 X what they are today. Apparently our ancestors survived cause we're still here. And so, you know, but you know, it's not like a PC argument to have with somebody. And so everybody's got their own opinions on yeah. I think it's fine to strive for a cleaner world, less emissions. That's all great. I just don't get as doomsday about like by 2050, if we don't change what we're doing, like, like everything's underwater. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a little dramatic in that regard, but I think the, the spirit of trying to lead more sustainable, cleaner lives, like totally supportive of all that. But I, the fossil fuel guy in me says like the shift that we want to undertake is not, not one that occurs in five or 10 years. Yeah. It's a multi-decade generational thing. I mean, even by the IEA's own pro projections on current EV pace of adoption, which is dramatic and, and really kind of high levels of growth, you're really only going to knock 5 million barrels a day off demand by 2030. So by the end of the decade, you're going to have net overall energy growth because the world's growing, but let's just call it hundred million barrels a day. So now you're talking about 95 million barrels a day. The investor in me on the oil and gas side says like our lack of reinvestment within the oil and gas industry is going to cause like real problems and problems for consumers and higher prices. Um, and so that aspect of just totally, you know, kind of dropping the mic and walking away from 
oil and gas, uh, I think it's totally premature. Without a doubt, we'll have $80, $80 plus oil at some point this year. But we were talking about it last week, like, man, it's probably going to be over 100 at some point in the next 6, 12 months. I mean, it just, you always kind of reap what you sow. And at a certain point, if you're not reinvesting in what is in essence a depleting and declining business, that lack of reinvestment, you're going to get caught in a pinch point where you're you're not replacing barrels that the world's still consuming, even though you, maybe you don't want to be consuming them, but you still are. Yeah. And you can't, you can't not reinvest in a whole sector that the entire mobility of the world kind of consumes every day. And do Americans forget that, like, from an electrification standpoint, that's going on in America? But when you look at country, or continents like Africa and India and these developing nations, like, they're just now starting to get on fossil fuels. So as we might yeah. be ramping down a little, there's countries that are doubling down. Yeah, there's 2 billion people in the world that don't have access to electricity. Like, let's start with kind of the morality of that like yeah. shouldn't we get bring these people out of the dark first before we mandate that they must have more expensive energy when they clearly haven't been able to afford energy in the first place and so yeah i don't know I, there's i think if if somebody's reasonable down the middle of the road and you can see a lot of merit on what everybody's saying but typically that kind of civil discourse just doesn't doesn't make the news anymore now it's all the extremes on both sides yeah. and so but yeah, I mean, I think there's a real role for, especially for natural gas to play for several decades yet to come because renewables are great. And without a doubt, solar and wind have come down the cost curve dramatically. Like when you look at the levelized cost of energy, comparing wind, solar, combined cycle, natural gas, electrical generation, they're pretty much a parity. It's yeah. just shocking because like until a year or two ago, I've been like, oh, it's too expensive. Just, you know, it's a... Um, kind of wishful thinking deal, but they've done a really good job, just like the shale industry did, of just attacking costs, driving down costs. All of a sudden you look up and you're like, oh my gosh, like when the sun is shining, like it is just as cheap as natural gas and wasn't the case two or three years ago even. And so if you're not really kind of paying attention to that, like you can really have some stale and kind of dated assumptions. But the big missing ingredient in all that is, and this comes back to batteries, but that's fine when renewable resources are, are there to capture, but when it's cloudy days or windless days, like you got a real problem when the developed world is accustomed to flipping light switch and it works. Yeah. You know, if you totally rely on renewables without either one utility scale, energy storage, which is batteries or some type of fossil fuel backup, whether that's combined cycle, natural gas or coal, et cetera, that's not the right answer either. Yeah. Um, so a lot yet to come with all that and utility scale batteries definitely are coming, but, but when you put that cost in with the renewable costs, it's still well above just natural gas yep. power. So, so there's still a role for quite some time for natural gas to play. But if we've seen anything like in the oil and gas business with shale, like technology advances pretty rapidly and better stay on your toes because it'll it'll change in front of your eyes so so yeah and that just kind of comes back to trying to stay nimble as an entrepreneur and really kind of pay attention to, to what's occurring out there in the world i, I want to loop back into that towards the end and i already get a sense that oil and gas is on your mind right now uh being an entrepreneur all right well let's just go back to nickel for a little bit Okay. When you were told it was 80% more efficient than a combustion engine, what does that 80% efficient mean? 80% more efficient, meaning what? 
Yeah. So if you took, you know, I guess at a base level power coming into whether it's an internal combustion engine, an ice engine, or into a power plant, and then by virtue of, you know, electrical wiring, charging up your car, the entire nature of having millions of individual engines, which are burning a fuel is, as I would come to find out, inherently less efficient than if you had kind of a centralized power source and just kind of electrical energy kind of conducted that way. And so that's what started to resonate with me on like a actual unit of energy efficiency. Ice engines were actually, you know, not so cutting edge and you could clearly see a, a world where efficiency started to win on the other side. And so now then you got to back up and just like, what's, what's supplying that electricity? Is it coal, nuclear, natural gas, et cetera. But that's the part of the argument that resonated with me. It's just, it's a kind of dated methodology of mobility. Yeah. And not that it goes away overnight, but if we've seen anything in life, like, and especially in capital markets like America, like if somebody's got a better mousetrap, like at some point, like it just kind of wins. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, we'll see how all that plays out and ever what kind of time duration. But if you get to the point where you have real kind of cost parity and it's cleaner, and that's really what I noticed growing up around the coal business, like the moment natural gas was, it is cleaner by half of the emissions compared to coal. But at the moment it was cheaper and cleaner, like watch out, like yeah. you're in trouble. And that's what the coal industry ran into is all of a sudden for decades, it could hang its hat on were the cheapest source of energy for America. And so at a certain point when they lost that, so, okay, now you're more expensive and you're dirtier, like. Yeah, it's over. Days are numbered. Yeah. So you gotta watch, gotta watch out. Is nickel used for anything other than batteries that's like notable or is battery the main? Yeah, it's in some alloys. Um, so certainly construction materials stuff as well, but, you know, and, and stainless steel being the largest market uh, of that, but by the end of the decade, it'll be 70 or 80% of nickel consumptions going towards batteries. batteries. Yeah. So that'll totally dominate that. And you had said, business. and you had said class one nickel, is there multiple classes? There's just two. Okay. Uh, and it's just kind of various grades of nickel in that regard. So you've got a subsector called nickel pig iron, which is a less pure product. So yeah. it's good enough for stainless steel, but batteries are quite fickle and and everybody wants good performance on their batteries, like a charge to last all day and stuff. So you, a higher purity nickel is kind of what's uh, desired. And so class one nickel is kind of that higher level of purity. Yep. Yep. And more on the business side, I mean, you talk about it like anybody does this, but you you said, you know, we'd met with this guy, this older guy. He kind of gave us the, the thumbs up. We go to Western Australia and then you're like, we just hired a team and started buying stock in this public mine and... How how do you hire yeah. a team in Australia from America with a guy that did you use his gray hair to convince people to come work for you or like how do you how quickly did that one spin up thirty yeah. days later yeah well we're <laughs> yeah well within two or three months we'd kind of hired most of the team but Mick had a great network he'd spent his entire career in the industry on the mining side and so we we're definitely able to leverage that whether you know Sam or Dean or AJ you know he could. He could quickly kind of help us assess or reach out to to people within his network about just what these guys are doing. It's exciting, et cetera. 
So it, it stood up in, in pretty short order. And then really what we tried to focus on was not going and taking a lot of exploration risk. And one thing Mick assured us of was you're not going to go to Australia and, and teach them how to mine. He's like, they are some of the best miners in the world, uh, which is totally true. And so uh, for us, it was okay, nickel pig iron from Indonesia kind of flooded the markets mid 20 teens, about 2015, et cetera. So a lot of Western Australian nickel mines shut in. Um, and this was kind of pre EV. So those particular nickel mines had high quality products in a lower price environment. Didn't make sense to pump. And so I almost make the analogy to it, us going to Perth and Western Australia was the equivalent of going to Midland, like the early 2000s, like a lot of stuff had been shut in more of like a PDMP kind of acquisition, like it's proved, it's developed, it's just not producing. And by virtue of the price environment, not necessarily the reserves or the grade. And so that was kind of what we focused on. Just, I don't want to punch holes in the ground and hope to hit nickel. Let's find a defined resource that in a lower price environment wasn't necessarily worth work, you know, running. But if our, you know, thesis plays out and nickel prices rise, it'll be a profitable and, you know, worthwhile endeavor. So that's kind of how we looked at it, approaching it. And then Poseidon, the company we own 20% of, similarly had a really good portfolio of nickel assets, had some midstream assets, uh, concentrators that really give you the ability to access Asian markets. And so we just really liked what they had. Um, Didn't at that time have great leadership. And so us and we'd met another Australian gentleman, um, Andrew Forrest, big in the nickel space, actually big in the iron ore space. He's actually Australia's richest person. Um, he was a shareholder in Poseidon. So we got together, decided to put in new leadership, et cetera. And so us and Andrew kind of reconstituted that company and super excited about the prospects it has, but it's a ASX listed junior mining company on their stock exchange down there. It's been a lot of fun, been really neat. I just like the adventure aspect of it too. Just, yeah. just kind of the intellectual curiosity angle of learning a new business and the fundamentals and all that stuff always kind of fascinates me. So, so that part's been fun. So you partner with one of Australia or Australia's richest person. Y'all put in new leadership with yep. the business plan to like start mining it and creating better sales channels for it. Yeah, you've got... This was other opportunity that I felt existed when I kind of looked at the mining space, but oil and gas, there's 30 private equity firms, uh, really kind of robust, mature private equity market that invests in assets and either grows them, takes them to market, sells them at the food chain, et cetera. And within mining, it was kind of a different methodology of capitalization in that a lot of assets early on go public and become kind of junior listed companies. And they might have a market cap anywhere from 20 to hundred million, but the inefficiencies that start to exist, um, one is kind of subscale, but two, you end up with a lot of kind of, what we come to recognize the terminologies like lifestyle miners, like people that are kind of running a small public company, but aren't really motivated or incentivized to like go into production and actually kind of grow something interesting so and then there's only three or four private equity groups that actually do mining i would say globally but a, a note like orion rcf paula and like maybe one or two others and 
you just realize there wasn't like a lot of private capital playing that middle market. And that's what attracted me to it as well was, okay, if we can bring private capital to bear, advance some of these assets back into production, there just wasn't a lot of guys doing that. Whereas in oil and gas, there's literally 30 private equity groups that might be bidding at any particular marketed process, marketed asset. So the playing field felt a little different. And then, you know, the other thing to kind of point out is just because, you know, an asset is mid-tier, just because Vale, Rio Tinto, or BHP don't own it doesn't mean it's not worth owning. You know, often those guys don't get out of bed unless it's a billion, $3 billion project, et cetera. Like there's a lot of really good deposits in the world that are maybe they're 10 or 12 year mine life, maybe they're $500 million projects, um, but they're really high grade and they're really profitable. Yeah. They're just subscale for BHP is not going to go mess around with something like that. So that, that to me felt like an area you could exploit where there's good high quality projects that might be mid market as you would kind of think about the full spectrum of investment. Is there a lot of nickel in the world? Not enough. Not not enough. enough? Um, and ultimately it'll drive some form of substitution. Um, but yeah, man, if you, if you wanted to hit everybody's EV aspirations, just not going to be physically possible. Um, and, not just nickel, you could say the same for copper and, and on down the list, uh, cobalt, et cetera. And so, no, there's not. And that's one of the things that that I like to point out is that's one area where mining contrasts with oil and gas, like really surprisingly, like much different yeah. and, and lead time to market. And so on the oil and gas side, we could stand up tr- 20 rigs and dr- drill a boatload of oil and gas wells within six months and really gross meaningful production. And that responsiveness just doesn't exist in mining. And so when you think about from when somebody first drills the discovery hole intersects, you know, call it a nickel sulfide intersection, but from when they first have discovery to when the mine actually produces is typically anywhere from five to eight years. I mean, just way more, Way more time goes into understanding an ore body, getting it permitted. And as you can think about all the the earth moving and everything that goes on above ground, just the regulatory environment, it's just it takes a lot longer. Yep. And the dramatic targets we're all putting forth on the EV side doesn't contemplate that like whatsoever. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like you can build all the battery manufacturing facilities that you want in the world, but until like you go fully up the supply chain and like fill the chute, like it's just not gonna happen, man. Like yeah. um and so and then there's a whole nother element of, you know, the world's just very sensitive to ESG, et cetera. There's a whole element, certainly that doesn't want to invest in oil and gas anymore, but also really doesn't like to invest in mining. But that's when you got to take a step back and like, look, at the end of the day, we're all consumers and we all live on earth. And like, if we don't consume, <laughs> you know, stuff from mother earth, like what are we consuming? And so it's it, like, you have to, if you're going to have like modern day commerce and amenities, like you're, whether it's mining or drilling, like you're, we're all consumers. And so that part, there's a real disconnect between the capital that exists in the world and the aspirations for what people want to do from a you know net zero perspective and like what it takes to get there and yeah. like people generally view mining as like a dirty business 
fossil fuel ask, um, even if you're chasing copper and very relevant battery metals. And so ultimately, and we were actually talking about this earlier today, and not that you ever want to compare yourself to the cigarette guys, but like if you look at the number one performing stock from 1968 to today, it's not Google, it's not, you know, some Roman candle tech company, uh, it's Altria, the cigarette maker. And a dollar invested in 68 is worth like 8,000 and some change today. A dollar invested in the S&P in 1968 is worth like $700 today. And so, I mean, just order magnitude, more returns. And then your next question is like, well, why isn't that? Like, isn't cigarette consumption going down? Isn't it, you know, very <laughs> not, not in flavor? And yes, all those things are true, but that's where... It really creates like a an artificial kind of valuation gap where you've got a whole sector of people that won't own a stock for reasons other than financial reasons. And yeah. so for the guys that decide like, well, I don't mind old own the stock, like the, the returns for that sector of people are just that much better um, because of non-financial reasons yeah and so that's what ultimately the cigarette manufacturers came to is like they were totally uninvestable nobody wanted to put money in them to the point where the people that were willing to be investors and shareholders had really outsized returns more so than a normal market would provide because of that kind of artificial non-financial restraint yeah. um and so it's just really interesting just What's that mean for oil and gas or for some level of mining, even if it's battery metals mining, not coal mining, et cetera. But if the world's going to generally view you as uninvestable or, you know, beneath their kind of criteria, the guys that probably do it are that probably going to have the best returns yep. at the end of the day. Because just like where we started the conversation, like 10 years out from now, we're still burning 95 to 100 million barrels a day and you look at the reinvestment or lack thereof that's occurring in the space today like it's not going away overnight and so that that to me is the guys that are still in the space a year or two or three from now probably crushed it um so i don't know that's that's uh that's my opinion anyway you know infinitely more about this stuff than i do but i would at uh, a high level i would almost make the uh, thesis that if you're betting against ESG, there's probably a lot of opportunity in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm just, I'm very big on natural resources and hard assets and you can, a whole host of reasons. One, you have stimulus and everything that's created there. But two, I mean, you look around, stocks look pretty frothy relative to where they've traded historically. You look at bond yields and they're terrible and you've got to think at some point, when the Fed does decide to raise rates, like you don't want to own a bunch of underpriced bonds and you don't want to just sit in cash because your actual kind of purchasing power is decreasing year by year. So what do you do? And so I come to the conclusion, I think natural resources are a great place to be. But yeah, there's there's a lot of asset classes out there that are kind of characterized as safer places to be. But I, I kind of question the the logic in that just by virtue of kind of what's going on with monetary policy in the world, et cetera. You yeah. just um, really need to be sensitive to that. And if you ever see the graph of like the M2 money supply, uh, it's totally eye-opening. I mean, the amount of dollar printing we've done in the last 
decade, call it. It's just obscene. It's off the charts. And to frame it, 25% of all the dollars in circulation were printed last year. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the, I'll be first line to say the pandemic is like, it was pretty existential. And like all of us as business people were like, you know, certainly laser focused on getting to the other side. And, and without a doubt, government's got a role to play in those kind of times. Um, but if you just get too loose with the printing press and running deficits into perpetuity, like bill comes due at some point. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's not us, maybe it's our children, but, but just at some point you want to, you want to have a little more level headedness when it kind of comes to policy decisions like that, I think. Maybe just one question is what brings money back into oil and gas? Do returns bring it back? Or is it the industry getting smarter and telling a better story? They've historically done a bad job of talking. About oh, we're the, the worst. Oh, yeah. we're, we're the absolute worst of PR. I mean, all the things like the water bottle you just drank out of. I mean, there's so many things in the world that come from like Petrochem and products that are derived from what we do as an industry. But without a doubt, like really bad on the PR side. Don't know if that changes. I'd say returns absolutely will help. I think the industry will, it'll remain smaller than probably what it's been previous decade or two. And that'll be a bit of that. It'll be the function, the rise of renewables and, and other forms of energy in the world. But it's certainly got a role to play. I think just what you couldn't do is have inferior returns and be an ESG liability. That's a real quick way for like you to not attract new investors. Yeah. Um, now, when we get back to the point of we're actually delivering kind of robust, kind of mid-teens returns, et cetera. And I do think in an era of lower reinvestment on behalf of the oil and gas companies, you know, two things would come out of that. One, higher oil and gas prices, which is reinforcing and good for the oil and gas companies. But two, that that discipline, like public oil and gas companies are gonna be free cash flow monsters coming up over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also in markets. I think ultimately some healthy and robust dividend kind of payouts for a couple quarters, like will start to attract some attention, especially in a yield starved world where you just can't find it anywhere else. Yeah. Um, it'll, it'll come back around. But I, I do think it'll it'll probably be a, a bit of a smaller industry than it was the previous decade or decade prior. But look, we'll still be drilling oil and gas wells twenty five years from now, so you can't you can't just flip the switch and wish it away. Um, so it's going to remain relevant. I think if returns are good, you know, back to the the cigarette analogy, but like somebody's going to like making twenty percent on their money. Yeah, you know? so. <laughs> As long as uh, as long as we deliver, there <laughs> there will be investors out there. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I, I think I think we do it infinitely better than twenty years ago, forty years ago, when it comes to the ESG kind of elements and um, everything that goes into environmental and being good stewards. I think ninety nine percent of our industry is is pretty fantastic when it comes to that. I think we just don't don't have a good kind of PR machine out there that that really kind of reinforces that in the, the average U.S. consumer. But I do, I think overall as an industry, we're, we're good stewards. Yeah. Yeah. Aubrey was the last great PR machine when it came into the <laughs> Barnett. I remember those billboards like, oh, yeah. City. Oh, yeah. All right. We have one minute. Let's leave people hanging on 
are there, are there a few statistics on nickel that will leave people kind of just shocked Oof. as you see it today? Or oil and gas. Yeah. Here's one that'll really surprise the heck out of you. Um, and again, back to EIA, IEA projections, but in 2030, the size of the coal industry will actually still be two times that of the battery metals industry, really? believe it or not. Yeah. Um, so I was reading through their kind of energy transition report. And it's just a reminder, like, even as quick as we're transitioning and back to your earlier comments on Africa and Asia, like China's still building the heck out of coal plants like daily. So, yeah. you know, the world's growing, it needs more energy of all forms and more, some more advanced countries might be making energy transition that others are maybe one iteration prior and they're getting coal-fired electricity for the first time. And so I, I found that really interesting. Uh, the U.S. has clearly moved on from coal and you can see in every statistic on the power uh, generation side, but other places in the world, like it's it's more emerging than it is kind of exiting stage right. So, so I, I found that interesting. But one interesting statistic as you think about battery metals and EV targets, where we want to go as a global population, this is how short we are just on current pace of adoption of EVs in the world between now and 2030. And so from a copper perspective, you're basically going to be a million tons per annum short of that. And so what does that kind of imply is, and this is a good analogy for the oil and gas guys, but Escondida is the largest copper mine in the world. You're in essence going to be short, the largest mine globally. You need to find one of those every 24 months between now and 2030 to suffice current EV targets. And so, you know, the biggest copper mines in the world aren't falling off trees. Like every, <laughs> that was discovered in the sixties, I think it was. And so that's just not something that comes along often. And then to put it into an oil and gas perspective, it would be the equivalent of me telling you like, great, I need you to go start a Pioneer Natural Resources and build it in the next 24 months and then do that every 24 months between now and 2030. And you're like, dude, I can't do that. Like, it's just <laughs> not, not realistic. And so at a certain point, like copper will have scarcity, scarcity is going to drive premiums, copper's an incredible battery metal and that it's the most well it's the second most conductive metal in the world solely behind silver well silver is more expensive so that's why we don't have silver electrical wires we have copper so at a certain point you know copper's ripped up from four thousand a ton to ten thousand a ton well at a certain point you're going to reach a price point where it's gosh what's next what else could we potentially substitute that would be aluminum uh, but it's got half the conductivity of copper so really at current prices, like you're starting to get where you'd contemplate other sources, but invariably it, it's, it's really a function of just, it's going to be higher prices, you know, all the way around. And yeah. so, so it's really interesting, just kind of the severe kind of supply crunch that's coming on the copper side and nickel, cobalt, et cetera, you go down the list. Uh, cause when you're trying to reach all these aspirations, like there's, there's not a, a real kind of pathway to get there on the natural resources side and then you go say oh it's going to take you five years permit of mine like five years is too late like every oem is saying they're going to be all electric in five years like where there's just there's a lack of consistency between what guys want to do and then ultimately what the industry is really kind of capable of doing or delivering so um, that's why we're 
bulls on the battery metal side is because with the thematic shift and everybody's lurching towards like we want to do this well they're really kind of forgetting like the like the base ingredients aren't just on the shelf ready to grab go do that and so that'll drive competition 10 battery gigafactories get built they're trying to source all the raw materials they need to build their batteries um just going to really drive scarce premium scarcity premium for certain battery metals that exist out there so bullish on that over the coming decade but like we were saying bullish on oil and gas too for different reasons not in dramatic growth side but just the dramatic lack of reinvestment and the world's not driving any less population's growing um so you really really kind of left with you really need to be reinvesting like in all this uh even if you are doing an energy transition because it is a a multi-decade event yep so if you found if even if you could find the copper mine every two years of that size is it is it exasperated even further because even if you found it it's still going to take five to eight years to even yeah that's where it's just a circular yeah (laughs) like you'll never you'll never satisfy what what ultimately the globe the world wants to do yeah in the finite amount of time can i ask you one more question sure you said that at previous times, uh, thirty, there were times where it was thirty x more CO two in the air, and when I when I hear that, and I'm like, the world we live in today, where there's smoke being pumped in, like, what would have caused thirty times more CO two back in the day? Do you know the answer to that? Oh, I don't know, okay. I, like volcanoes, et cetera. Got it. Got <laughs> I it. Okay, but I, I did see a chart at one point where. You know, we were clearly in one of the valleys as far as CO two concentration over the millennia, over like millions of years of Earth. Um, and I guess they get this from the ice packs and when they kind of do those samples. But <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I guess it would have been volcanoes, et cetera, just the natural cyclicality of the earth, which I sometimes think we're presumptuous and think like humans are driving kind of every kind of climate event that occurs. But yeah. but yeah, when you put it in that context, it was like, well, gosh, you know, not only double, but we could double 10 times in a row CO2 concentrations and we're still not like maxing out ever what the earth has seen. So I think earth's probably a little more resilient than we give credit for not to take for granted that there aren't things we need to do to, to be more sustainable and cleaner as a society. But I like the doomsday stuff probably probably a bit much sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Rhett, this was fascinating. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. This was awesome. Yeah. No, appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.